to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Please welcome back our dearly beloved Dr. John Cutterback. I thank you for this opportunity. It's a great, um, it's a great blessing for me to be able to come and do this on occasion. So thank you, and thank you all for, for coming out. It's always, it's always great to be with you. I thought, I'm just going to tell you this. It jumped into my mind as we were saying our opening prayer, and you'll see how this will connect to some things we're going to talk about. St. Thomas Aquinas says, all you have to do to have all of your desires be rectified is to desire things as you pray for them in the Our Father. It says the Our Father is the perfect prayer wherein our Lord taught us what to desire and what order to desire it in. He has a beautiful little uh, treatment of this. I'm trying to think of what title it's published under now. There's a little book that's called the. Mm, I'll have to think about that and, and, and get it's, it's it's available from Sophia Institute Press. It, it has this commentary on the Our Father, and he begins by saying, "This is the perfect prayer, especially in that way, that." We ask God, our Lord has put the words into our mouth. If we ask for these things in this order, we are expressing how we should want things. And in saying of the prayer of it, it will tend to transform us to want those things that we're asking for. And again, in that very order. Isn't that a neat point? Well, we're going to end up talking a little bit here about rectification of desire and how that's going to tie in with the cross. Please make sure you have a um, handout. We're going to be looking again at some quotations here. I'm going to say a couple of things about what we did last time and then uh, jump into some exciting stuff, stuff, some exciting points for here this evening. Our big issue, can we make sense of the cross? Is the cross contrary to wisdom or is it in fact the greatest exemplification of wisdom? Can we integrate the cross into a reasonable understanding of how we should live? We already argued last time that the wisdom of the cross, the teaching of the cross, does in fact transcend anything that human reason could have known on its own. 
So it's not something that would have been available to us. Though it is something that those who followed the teachings of nature, who responded to the natural light that God has put in us, they would have been well disposed, particularly since nature had taught them to be humble and to be looking for more always. The true philosopher, even from the natural viewpoint, is always highly aware that he needs to learn. That he needs to come humbly before reality and be ready to see that things are different than he would have expected. This is what the greatest of philosophers always said. We need to be looking and ready to learn in humility, realizing we have seen so little and we need, we need, as it were, to be ready to be surprised and to be taught. So this type of attitude would have made them well disposed then for divine revelation, which in fact comes along and reveals something where we have that experience of, oh my goodness, how can this be? But if we're willing to get over the original shock, how can this be? Is it really going to take this? Is this really how things are? If we're willing to submit ourselves and to start to walk along, then we will discover, in fact, that this new wisdom this higher wisdom is the perfect fulfillment of everything we ever could have wanted. It's just, it, as it were, surprised by joy will we be if we are willing to continue to make the effort to find the deeper wisdom that is the wisdom of the cross. So, what we're going to do is now look a little more deeply into what is the wisdom of the cross and how does it fulfill our deepest human desires? And a couple of thoughts on how we might try to live it out. I want to begin by reminding you of something seen by natural reason expressed by the philosophers. I don't think I've ever, even, even, even when Deacon Sabatino asks that I address something such as this beautiful point from St. Paul, I like to go back to, let's start with a fundamental principle that the philosophers have shown us. And when I say the philosophers have shown us, what that means is what God has shown us through natural reason. He, he, he has taught us that so that we might see that in preparation for the higher things. So it's always so exciting to go back and say, what did especially these great ones of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle see? Well, let's remind ourselves of one of their fundamental points, their view of virtue. Virtue, remember, these great philosophers hold, does not yield happiness as though happiness is a reward that is extrinsic to virtue. They do not hold that if you live well, if you cultivate virtues, then as a result of that, 
what will be added unto you, as it were, will be happiness, as though happiness is something extrinsic to living virtuously. Now you'll get the gift of being happy. Living virtuously is to be happy. Living virtuously, they saw, is to be happy. Now, there's different kinds of virtue. There's higher and lower virtues. But, but, but virtue understood rightly in its full panoply. Living the virtuous life is to be happy. And connected with that then, what did they see? They really saw the central moral project of life then is about cultivating virtues. And then particularly when you're talking about the moral virtues, what cultivating virtues means is, I'm going to say this in a somewhat Augustinian phrase, but it's capturing nonetheless still their insight. Growing in virtue is about transforming our desires. I really love this theme. Growing in virtue is about transforming our desires, transforming what we want, to use an Aristotelian word, Aristotle's word, transforming our appetites. For we all know by experience, and it's, I, I always love it, it's so interesting. These great philosophers had no idea of what original sin was. And even though there was, there was original sin, and they saw the effects of it clearly without knowing they were seeing the effects of original sin, they still had such confidence that nature had been arranged so well, and they still saw clearly what the good human life was going, needed to be. And they set forth on the project to become virtuous. Even though they didn't have the aid of grace, even though it took such an effort without grace to try to transform their desires, they set forth with courage, still having a clear sense of this is where we need to go. We don't start this way. It's very clear that it needs to be the fruit of discipline, of education, of practice. And so much of their energy is bent around how can we transform our desires? How can we become what we should be? How can we change ourselves so that then we come into conformity with how clearly we were designed to be. Human happiness, fulfillment, flourishing looks like this. It's kind of out there, but it's what we're for. We're going to have to work very hard to get there, and they bent all their energies on how to do that. So it was all about, might we simply say, coming to rectitude of appetite, rightness, of desire. It's part of the reason I use that phrase with you as, as regards the Our Father. I, I, I like to think of, of the look on Aristotle's face had he been shown. Here is a prayer that will perfectly express to you and empower you to achieve all that you've been talking about. My main thesis for tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is we never could have known by natural reason. But in fact, in fact, the 
ultimate way, the ultimate way to come to rectitude of appetite, to come to having the virtues that we were designed to have, the ultimate way is the cross of Christ. This is the great revelation. This is the great teaching where the wisdom of Christianity and the wisdom of the Greeks should come together. I'm standing where I can see a crucifix on the top of the back wall there. That is an expression of the ultimate way that you and I need to become what we were designed to be. That is what those philosophers could have had no idea of. But by somehow doing that, we become precisely what they would have most wanted and so much more. Christianity, ladies and gentlemen, then to look into that a little further, gives us a whole new context within which to understand, will you allow me to just keep using that kind of technical term, rectitude of appetite? I know that sounds kind of dry, but you understand what I mean. Rect just means rightness. Appetite is the whole realm of will and desires. So to have moral virtues is to have rectitude of appetite. Christianity gives us a whole new context within which to understand rectitude of appetite. Now, are you ready? I'm going to drop a big one on you right now. Often, I, I, I like to more put off and work up to more exciting things. Well, I'm going to drop an exciting one on you right now, all right? So don't, don't snooze and miss it. <laughs> well, the good things are coming later. Still eating your carrots out there or something. All right. The ultimate context, the ultimate context within to, within which to understand our project, our project of transforming ourselves. Isn't this great for Lent? Our whole project of transforming ourselves. The ultimate context, Christianity tells us, is friendship with God. Again, here's something that the Greeks could in no way have seen. And one of my favorite points, which I shan't belabor, Aristotle explicitly asks the question, can men be friends with God? And the fundamental answer that he gives, as you know, is no. And in fact, we can say he's giving the right answer. Unless something dramatic happens to change the natural situation, as it were, we are not going to be able to be friends with God. But something dramatic does happen. And it's that. So now, friendship with God is possible. Friendship with God is the ultimate goal, and it is the reason to become virtuous. 
No longer, ladies and gentlemen, do we simply have kind of the more Aristotle-Plato approach of, hey, look, you got to become virtuous just because clearly that's what humans are designed to do. In a sense, that was more their point. They just saw clearly courage, justice, prudence, that's happiness. I mean, you got to do that. That's, that's man alive, is living like that. Isn't it astounding simply that they saw that very clearly? Now, the thing is, and this is always what's so exciting about it, they're right. They're right, but they have no idea how right they are or how significant it is. For the point, ladies and gentlemen, is this. God, in calling us to grow in virtue, is thinking about friendship. Always remember this about friendship. Friendship is about wanting the same things and living together, one life, one in heart most of all, one in desire. So the ultimate context now, and note how this, it doesn't say, oh, well, no, you were wrong about those virtues. It gives the new view. Oh, my goodness. I need to be cultivating virtues because ultimately virtues are how I live like God so that he and I can share a life together. Which for Aristotle, again, would have been utterly out of the picture. So we have our new context here of everything about the realm of reforming appetite is directed towards friendship so that we can be at one with God, so that we can live with him. The line that Aristotle always used about friends is friends live together. Friends live together in the richest sense of those terms. The cross, ladies and gentlemen, now, to connect things, exemplifies this for us. The cross, ladies and gentlemen, here's another main assertion of the evening, some kind of front-loading things, and then we'll just unpack, unpack a few implications of it. The cross is always about conformity of wills. Christ dying on the cross he said again, he told us again and again, this is about my doing the will of the Father. So there's a conformity of wills. And then further, the cross that we are invited into is about our will being conformed to his. So again, let's just put the context together. What I'm inviting us to consider here is the whole realm of when we think about the cross in our lives, isn't it? It's a great thing to think about in Lent. I need to think about what is Christ calling me to as regards the cross. 
And we're going to look at how he specifically calls us to that. He's calling us to conform our will to his. That's the point. Suffering is never for the sake of suffering. Suffering is for the sake of conformity of wills. Now, right now, you might reasonably have said, um, if it's about conformity of wills, couldn't he just have chosen something that's a little less crossy? <laughs> really? I, I mean, is, is that necessary? Why is that necessary? I'm not going to invite you to raise your hand. I'm going to invite you to think about that on your own for 10 seconds. Why is the cross necessary for us to achieve a conformity of will with Christ? What if I made you answer that again? I'm not going to make anyone answer it. But what if I had you answer that in one word? What made the cross the only means to conformity of will with Christ? I'm thinking one word. It has three letters, and the first one is S. I'm not going to make a joke. I was just thinking, can I say some other word other than the real one? Sin, of course. <laughs> we have sinned. Sin, by definition, is a lack of conformity to God's will, period. Because we have sinned, we are in sin, the way to conformity of will with him will be a way of the cross. God did not choose the cross except as what was necessary for us to become what we need to be. Remember, may I put it this way? The only reason Christ is on the cross is so that we can get to where we need to be. I don't mean to be facetious, ladies and gentlemen, but let's focus on this. He's not doing it for his health. He's on the cross because we need to be on the cross, not because he needs to be on the cross. That's the point. So the hard wisdom here is if we now are ever going to be what we need to be, we've got to get on there with him. Otherwise, we will never be what we need to be. The only way, the only salvation 
The only way to be what we're called to be then is to accept this higher wisdom of the cross, which Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle told us will not suffice. They did not have what it takes. They did not have the strong remedy that our sinfulness demands. All right, so let's look at two things. The two things I want to look at with you, and we're going to use a few quotations for this, is learning from Christ's example on the cross and then carrying it with him. And that's all the rest that I have for you. Our, our two things are learning from Christ's example on the cross, and then I dare say what I'm most excited about then is a couple of reflections for you on how to carry it with him. Would you join me in, this is a large quotation, and let's, let's, let's just take a peek at it and note a few things about it. <clears throat> I'm on your handout in the first page. It is from another one of these that's very similar to what I, I was uh, telling you, the work. Um, this one is available in a, in a work, and again, I don't remember the title from Sophia Institute Press. St. Thomas, these are less technical works that he did. They were more for a general public. He, he, it's more, more like a sermon as opposed to a philosophical or theological treatise. He wrote this commentary on the Creed. He wrote one on the Our Father, and he has one on the Hail Mary, too. This is from his commentary on the Creed. Outstanding spiritual reading, by the way. I, I, I really want to, right, let's, let, let's, just, let's just start reading a little bit here together and we'll lift a few things out and then we'll go to our second point. From all this, so we're jumping in, in the middle, from all what he had just said before, what we're looking at here, from all this then is seen the effect of the passion of Christ as a remedy for sin. So we had looked first at simply how Christ dying on the cross gives us redemption. It saves us from sin. But now he wants to go and focus on a different point, which is what we want to focus on. But no less does it profit us as an example. St. Augustine says that the passion of Christ can bring about a complete reformation of our lives. Whoever wishes to live perfectly need do nothing other than despise what Christ despised on the cross and desire what Christ desired. Isn't that, isn't that a great way of putting it? Talk about rectification of appetite. I'm almost thinking, come on, is, that, is he really serious? Was Christ actually desiring things on the cross? Was he despising certain things? St. Thomas is suggesting he was literally teaching us what to want and what not to worry too much about by what he did on the cross. There is no virtue that did not have its example on the cross. So, so what, what he does here, ladies and gentlemen, and we'll, get, we'll, just, we'll just peek at it, and I hope that you'll go back and use this as a reference. He refers precisely to four virtues, followed by what he calls contempt for earthly things, which is like a virtue. The four virtues he mentions here are charity, patience, humility, and obedience. And you know what? I had had this all prepared, and I was just looking, looking over that, and I said, I'm always interested by what 
uh, St. Thomas chooses to use as his examples. And guess what I discovered? Literally, as I was thinking about it driving up this evening, I'm so excited to, to share this with you. I have memorized St. Thomas's prayer after communion. In a lot of old, um, in a lot of kind of old books, there'll be uh, prayer books or mass books. You'll sometimes find St. Thomas's prayer after communion. If you look for St. Thomas's prayer after communion, after saying a few things, it's, 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 it's enjoyably long, if I may put it that way. In other words, it's not just a shorty. Um, he comes to ask for certain virtues. He says, may the reception of your body and blood, Lord, be for the increase of virtues. And then, I just think this is so intimate, because of course, in St. Thomas is writing this, surely he's sharing with us how he prays. I don't think he sat down and said, how, how will I recommend other people? I, 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 I think it's fair to assume he was sharing how he prayed, and of all the virtues, for what he asked our Lord for at that most intimate moment in Holy Communion. The four he asked for are these four. So if you look in that prayer, it's charity, patience, humility, and obedience. I suggest for your consideration, you want to know the heart of Thomas Aquinas? Those are the four virtues that come to the top when he wants to really hammer at what it's all about. Because he chooses those to be as ones that, you want to see these? Let's look at Christ on the cross. So let's just, let's just take a peek at how he does it. So if you seek an example of charity, by the way, I, I forgot to bold humility there. I bolded charity, patience. Humility is about another 10 lines down below patience, where it says, if you seek an example of humility, look upon him. So that should have been bolded so that you'd see all four. All right, so if you seek an example of charity then, greater love than this no one has than to lay down his life for his friends. And this Christ did upon the cross. If therefore he gave his life for us, we ought to endure any and all evils for him. What shall I render to the Lord for all the things he has done for me? N not only has Christ set an example of charity, certainly he has called us to charity. I love when St. Thomas one point says, what more evokes your love for somebody than to see that that person loves you? God, knowing this truth, what more could he have done to try to evoke in us, and remember, he's invoking it in us for our sake, not his, to evoke in us our love for him. Talk about love. His whole point is to get us to love because then he knows we'll be happy. If you seek an example of patience, this is the one he gives the most attention to. Patience is a virtue given much attention by St. Paul also. If you seek an example of patience, you will find it in the highest degree upon the cross. Great patience is exemplified in two ways. Either when one suffers intensely in all patience, or when one suffers that which he could avoid if he so wished. And then he goes on and explains how that obtains in a particular way here. Can I give you St. Thomas's understanding of patience? I love St. Thomas's definition of patience. Enduring evil 
or suffering without being overcome by sorrow. This is what he calls patience. To endure evil or suffering without being overcome by sorrow. So that, isn't that an extremely helpful? I, 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 I struggle a bit with impatience. And when I first read that, I thought, is, it, is that really what's happening? When, when I am getting impatience, getting kind of angry that things aren't going my way. I mean, St. Thomas always gets these things right. When you're being impatient, you're in a sense being overcome by sorrow. Not that there wasn't perhaps some legitimate reason to be sad, but to be patient is to endure that sadness, to endure that sorrow in view of the greater things and not let the sorrow get in your way. When we become impatient, that's when we're saying, that's it. And we're not willing to go on anymore. Let's jump down and take a peek at, at humility. If you seek an example of humility, look upon him who was crucified. Although he was God, he chose to be judged by Pontius Pilate and to be put to death. Your cause has been judged as that of the wicked. Truly that of the wicked, because let us condemn him to a most shameful death. The Lord chose to die for his servant. The life of the angels suffered death for man. Quotes Philippians, he humbled himself becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You know how St. Thomas describes humility? Humility, according to St. Thomas, Aiming for what your true greatness is, and not above it. Aiming for your true greatness, but not above it. You don't ever pretend to be worthy of or do more than is yours. Isn't it, for St. Thomas, he loves to say, Humility is the first step. It's the first step of so many things because if you're willing, if you're humble, if you're willing to realize your station, basically, the key of humility is you realize you're not the Lord. Because you're not the master, you're not the lawgiver. So in humility, we recognize we must receive. We must receive the orders of our master. It is not our place to determine what is good and evil. It's not our place to determine exactly how we should or shouldn't live. It is our place to obey the commandments. So we don't aim so high as to say we're in charge. Isn't it dramatic? Although he was God, he chose to be judged the extreme of I'm willing to be considered way below where I am rather than erring on the other side. If you seek an example of obedience, imitate him who was obedient to the Father unto death. Romans, look up. You notice how St. Saint, Saint Thomas just had the epistles of St. Paul oozing out of his pores. Whenever he wants to reflect on something, 
It just comes to his mind. I assure you, he didn't look it up. <laughs> As he was just meditating on the cross, St. Paul just comes to his mind and he writes it down. He humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, even to the death of the cross. Oh, sorry, wrong one. I'm supposed to be below that. For by the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners. So also by the obedience of one, many shall be made just. Remember this, when St. Thomas talks about the centrality of obedience, he says, tying back to an earlier theme of ours, obedience to God, he says, is always ultimately about friendship. St. Thomas explicitly says, the reason God wants you to obey him is he wants you to have the same will he does so you can be friends. The wisdom of the cross, him asking us, drawing us, do like I do, be obedient to the Father. He didn't even need to. If you seek an example of contempt for earthly things, imitate him who is the King of kings, the Lord of rulers, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom. On the cross he was stripped, naked, ridiculed, spat upon, bruised, crowned with thorns, given a drink of vinegar and gall, and finally put to death. How falsely, therefore, is one attached to riches and raiment. Raiment, of course, means clothing. For they divided my garments amongst them, and upon my robes they cast lots. How falsely to honors. So what, what does St. Thomas do? He goes through the different earthly goods that we might have been distracted by. And he points out anything you are tempted by, any earthly good you're tempted by, ask ourselves, what was Christ's attitude towards it on the cross? Are we concerned about what we're going to wear? Are we concerned about where we live? Are we concerned about what we're going to eat? Are we concerned about bodily comfort? Thus St. Augustine commenting on these words, who having joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Says the man Christ despised all earthly things in order to teach us to despise them. What a labor. They had to do all that to set that example for us. All right, enough on, on the example. Let's go on to our, our final point, actually carrying the cross with Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, I invite you to flip over. And um, here's my, if I had had something on the, I can't put this on my license plate. It's way too long. Um, <laughs> And maybe I should just put the, the numbers. That's what some people do. You take your favorite verse and you put the numbers on there. So here it is. To tie things together and wrap up into just a quick final meditation on the wisdom of the cross as an in, in invitation to us to join him. Come to me, all you who, are la who labor and are burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest 
for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Just a couple quick things to point out here. I've been reading some commentaries on this and I wanted to share a couple of things. First of all, bear this in mind. A beautiful point about the English word, ladies and gentlemen, come. The English word come has no meaning unless it is, in, unless it is used to invite you to go somewhere where the one saying it already is. Come is essentially different from go. If someone ever says come to you, he is inviting you to join him. Otherwise, it's not coming. I don't say to someone, come over there. I have to say to them, come here. And here, by definition, is where I am. So note how in this great command, it begins with that beautiful word, come. Let's tie that with the other key word in here. It's all about yoking. I invite us to go back to our, our main points of this evening in the wisdom of the cross, being about friendship. Yoking is coming together. Yoking, this is kind of rich, is working together. The word for yoke in Latin is yugam and is very closely related to the word for marriage. The word conjugal has J-U-G, J and I in Latin are the same, yugum, so you have this connection. A yoke is very closely connected etymologically with marriage. So I like to suggest we see here this is an invitation to a spousal union. As St. Thomas says, is there a friendship on earth that is higher than that of spouses. So Christ is inviting us to come to where he is so that we will be together. And what does he invite us then to do? Of course, to take up the cross. That is obviously implied here. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. So you all already know, you've heard this point before, worth remembering again. A yoke normally was two. The best work is done in the field where you have the two animals that move in harmony with one another. So the call to the cross is a call, again, for union to be at one with him. It is all about yoking. I say again, the only reason Christ is on the cross, the only reason he's carrying the cross, is so that when we have to do it too, he'll be there with us. Because that's the entire point, is that we 
want to be together. In other words, he wants to be together with us. So in wrapping up, ladies and gentlemen, and drawing out, reflecting a little bit more on that quotation there from Matthew 11, note this little um, commentary point that I gave from St. Thomas that fits in so nicely with a couple of things we've just been looking at. It's actually in St. Thomas's commentary on the Gospel of St. John, but in the context where he was, he actually refers back to Matthew 11:29, which is our quotation here. So look at what he says. In Matthew 11:29, after our Lord said, Come to me, all you who labor, he added, Learn from me, for I am, other translation of the word that's meek, gentle and humble of heart. Look at this great line from St. Thomas. Now the true gentleness of the Son of God consists in the fact that he submitted his will to the will of the Father. Would you ever have thought of that as meekness? Jesus, meek and humble of heart, make our hearts like unto thine. St. Thomas has just told you what he thinks meek means. doesn't mean mousy. In other words, I've always struggled a little bit with that until I read this. What, 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 are, we, what are we asking our Lord for, to imitate him in his meekness? And other maybe aspects one could look at there. St. Thomas says, meek, meek means this. Submit your will to the will of the Father. That's what he's inviting us to do. Look how that fits perfectly. Once again, the cross, ladies and gentlemen, the whole point of it is union of wills. The whole point is our happiness will be to learn that what we want should be what God wants us to want because that's what we've designed to do. Like to end with then a little reflection then since we saw yoke is connected to marriage, a quick thought on marriage. Isn't marriage, ladies and gentlemen, a labor? Isn't marriage a labor? It's a lifelong labor, isn't it? It's a communal labor, a pulling a yoke together for a long time for the sake of one another, for the sake of the children. We pull a yoke together for a very long time. It's hard. It's a labor. But what a joy it is. And I'd like to suggest that that's a very, very fitting natural sign indeed does not St. Paul tell us directly that the relationship of husband and wife is a sign of the relationship of Christ to his church which means Christ to you and me. So in a sense we are called to that spousal yoking. We are called to have one life, one great 
labor. In God's plan, if we're blessed with length of years, it is a hard, long one. But we plow that row together. Indeed, ladies and gentlemen, a favorite image is that the plow is the cross. We are yoked in carrying the cross. And you pull a cross and it turns over the soil. And we're not pulling the cross together because the soil of Christ's soul needs to be turned over. But there we are together pulling that cross along the row of life because the soil of our soul needs to be turned over. I want to leave you with uh, one of my favorite lines from the medieval poem that is in the great Requiem hymn, Dies Irae. Some of you have heard this before. Tantus labor, this is a prayer, tantus labor non sit casus. And it's referring to our Lord's hanging on the cross. And that means, may such a labor not have been in vain. And I give you, ladies and gentlemen, if we yoke ourselves to him and make that labor a common one, his will not have been in vain. Thanks so much. Professor, th thank you again for such a rich uh, uh, presentation. Uh, can you help, you help me out with some terminology? Where would the concept of sacrifice fall into these virtues? Is there, would that be under charity? Would it be under exactly where? Because uh, sacrifice is an element. Oh, that's a great question. Um, the word sacrifice is a little bit tricky because um, I think the way that you're using it is the way, of course, that we commonly use. I'm going to come back to it in one moment. But of course, sacrifice can be used in a kind of technical sense of sacrifice offered to God as a form of adoration, right? And, and that um, literally the word sacrifice means to make something sacred, sacrum fatere, to make something sacred. So in general, when you were sacrificing, you were setting something aside and offering it to God. Now, you're referring to kind of the, the broader common notion of we need to be willing to sacrifice. Now, I think that, that in the sense of offer something up, that, that goes along. I think it does, many of these virtues, first of all, are rooted in charity, charity being the kind of mother and queen of them all, that is, you do all these things, you're willing to be patient, you're humble, you're obedient, especially because we love. And so in, in, in a similar way, are we willing to sacrifice, are we willing to give up lower things for the sake of higher things? So I think it, it's in the sense that we normally mean it as, are we willing to make a sacrifice, 
that willingness to suffer, that willingness to give something up, will go along with a number of them. But then in the more technical sense, it goes along with a uh, virtue called religion, where you're making a sacrifice to God. But I just want to end up by saying in all cases where we're sacrificing, let's remember the original etymology. If we're willing to make a sacrifice, it is ultimately for the sake of ordering all things unto God. It is ultimately unto his praise. When we're willing to set this aside, we're making a sacrifice in Lent. It is to be trying to order our heart back so that it put God's, puts God first. Thanks. Dr. Professor Kutterbeck, not to include the philosopher like Aristotle because he was pre-Messianic, very, very different, and they could be fictive figures also, so Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato. Kind of very confusing. The devil would meddle. I mean, he used me, the devil, evil spirits, to use philosophy to understand the truth. Only the philosophy of Saint Augustine. Saint Thomas so, Aquinas. Yeah. Yeah. I think. The, so I think the question is how to how to trust the philosophers because they're pre-Christian, and can we really trust them because they're without the grace of God and things like that? So yeah, very good question. Excellent, excellent question. Quick, quick, quick word there. Um, some of the early fathers of the church actually used the language of natural preparation for, as we talked about last time, divine revelation. Uh, Father, um, uh, one of the priests at my parish had mentioned that uh, meekness was really kind of a, uh, a midpoint between two virtues, and he said that that, that was defined in, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, I was wondering if you could explain that. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to explain that. There, there might be a meekness, there might be a little bit of a translation issue going on where there's, a, where there's a meekness in the way that we more often use that in English of as not being too aggressive, but at the same time you need to be able to be proactive. So I'd have to look again at um, what, interesting, the meek that we use to translate what is being said there by our Lord when he says, I'm meek and humble of heart, that St. Thomas is capturing the way that we said here. I think there would be another meekness that would be more along the lines of a kind of humility of being gentle with people, but at the same time you can't be a carpet. And so I think that's where we kind of have the mean thing going on, but I have to look more into that to give you a better answer. Thank you, Professor. Um, I was this is kind of a follow-on to that gentleman's question. Um, was happiness possible temporally prior to the uh, cross, or because the cross resonates throughout eternity, did they somehow partake of uh, the salvation of the crucifixion, the, the, the Socratics and the Platonics and the Arist Aristotelians? Did they somehow partake of the sacrifice of the crucifixion, even though they lived prior to it? Well, that's a tough, that's a tough question. Um, there, were, there were two parts. The one part was, was happiness possible prior to the incarnation, basically? And there, we'd have to qualify it. Some happiness was certainly possible, a kind of earthly, incomplete happiness. Was there a real happiness in the virtuous life? of Aristotle, of Plato, of Socrates, I think we have to say absolutely. At the same time, there were significant things that were unfulfilled in them. Natural desires they themselves had that could only be fulfilled in God that were not yet fulfilled. And so, it, was there some happiness? Yes. But uh, proper, complete, full happiness? Absolutely not. 
Now this great question of had the, could they participate in something of the cross beforehand? I, I don't think we'd want to say in the full or proper sense that they could participate in, for instance, the sanctifying grace, which is the main kind of central gift that comes to us in redemption through the cross. But I is it possible nonetheless, in as much as the natural is, has a beginning of the higher supernatural wisdom? As you were saying it, I was thinking, I think there, there's echoes of what's going to be taught us on the cross. Those echoes of that, I think, in them, in their realizing how hard it's going to be, how, how you have to be willing to endure, how the just man has to be able to show himself through the ups and downs of fate. There, I, I want to say they, there's a kind of participation in it, but nonetheless, that, that would have been faint. And they didn't have grace, and they didn't have this great revelation of the cross that we do. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.